Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dan Spracklin to the show. As an efficiency expert, Dan has spent the past 20 years eliminating waste for Fortune 100 companies in a variety of industries. In 2013, Dan turned his focus to organic waste for his new venture, seizing on an opportunity to repurpose the billions of tons of waste biomass generated annually. In collaboration with Villanova University, he developed and commercialized hydrothermal carbonization technology that became the cornerstone of SOMAX's larger resource recovery platform, which transforms organic waste into advanced biofuels, carbon-negative products, and fertilizers in a closed-loop system. In 2021, SOMAX's resource recovery platform was recognized as a grand prize winner of the U.S. Department of Energy's Water Resource Recovery Challenge. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, Raj. And thanks for having me on today. Oh, Dan, of course. I'm looking forward to it. Dan, before we dig into SOMAX, I want to touch on your career in process improvement in the IT industry. Can you give me a brief outline of what exactly you did in the IT industry? Yeah. So out of um, school, my first jobs were in uh, financial services and insurance companies. And I worked my way up. Essentially, I was a business architect. So I made people, process, and technology merge together to make companies more efficient. Um, So whether that's closing on a loan quicker or resolving a workman's comp insurance claim quicker, um, you know, we, we just wanted to drive as much efficiency as we could throughout that process. So it exposed me to a lot of, um, you know, not only regulations, but also to, you know, technology. Um, but I'm one that, you know, I can't write a lick of code, but I can tell you what a store procedure does and what, uh, how you can co- bring up different attributes of, of IT. And the reason I wanted to touch on that is because if my research serves me right, you made the leap from being in process and efficiency in IT to a septic service business. Is that correct? That is, that is correct. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to um, take over my wife's family's business, which is Gray Brothers Septic Services. Uh, I've been in the business for three generations. Uh, my father-in-law only had three daughters. And so it was looking like they were getting ready to sell to someone else. And I thought, you know, I'm kind of sick of the corporate rat race. And I've always wanted to be my own entrepreneur. I uh, come from a long family of entrepreneurs. My grandmother, uh, my grandfather, two uncles all own their own businesses. So thought, what the heck? It's a business that's been around for, at that point, 82 years. Uh, probably can't screw it up too much. So I jumped into the waste management business with no experience. And the first day I saw a septic system was the, the day that I actually bought the company. Tell me about that transition. So that transition was, you know, for me, it was eye-opening because you're, you're in charge of yourself. You've got this well-oiled machine, but 
you know, was making a lot of efficiencies because the prior uh, management had sort of aged out, if you will. And so there was a lot of um, practices that were sort of out of date, everything that was handled on paper and routes were not optimized. So first, one of the first things I did was start to optimize that business, um, optimized our routing, our procurement, our um, note taking or order taking as well. And then we were able to really wring out a lot of efficiency out of that business. So we were able to uh, grow it pretty substantially. Um, in the first couple, two or three years, we doubled in size uh, and then brought on additional lines of service to further expand the business. So for city dwellers that might not be aware of what a septic system is, can you give me a brief overview? Yeah. So a septic system is really a home-based containment unit. So really involves two primary pieces. The first piece is a septic tank, and that's really a concrete or a plastic tank that's in the ground. That allows for the solids collection. So it collects all the solids from when you flush the toilet. And then the liquids will move out through an absorption area, and that can be a field um, lined with stone, and the, the wastewater basically goes over that field lined with stone. Sometimes it's lined with sand, depends on the soil quality. And then it goes through the soil, gets remediated, and ultimately ends up back into the water site. So water, I like to tell a lot of our customers, is the infinitely recycled material. That water that you're drinking, some molecules probably passed through an animal, you know, centuries ago, uh, and it continuously gets recycled. So there you were plugging along in a septic business, and you had an aha moment regarding Somex? I did, yeah. It was one of those where just sitting there thinking and, you know, being the weird guy that I am thought, you know, I'm hauling around 14 million gallons of human waste a year. There's got to be some value there because what we do essentially as a septic system is we go to your house every couple of years and we pump out the solids of that tank. And then we take that contents to a wastewater treatment plant and we dispose it of there. So we're a little bit like Uber for poop. All we're just moving it is from point, <laughs> point A to point B without sewer lines. Uh, and so I had this idea that there's value in there. You know, there's carbon, there's nitrogen, there's phosphorus. You know, what can we do to valorize this material? And I knew I wasn't smart enough to figure it out. So I went to the local university, Villanova University. I actually went and met with their plumbers and said, hey, I need to talk to some professors because I've got an idea. And eventually worked my way up to uh, the School of Sustainable Engineering, which is a graduate level uh, program. I believe it was the first one in the nation to focus on sustainability. So they take uh, mechanical, civil, environmental, chemical, electrical engineers that go and they get a, a master's degree in sustainable engineering. And so as part of that program, they like to tackle real world problems. So here I am as a small business owner going to a, a university and saying, hey, can we figure out how to valorize poop? And they thought it was a pretty good idea. So I sponsored research that first year and we were looking in to anaerobic digestion, we were looking into composting, and then we came across this little known technology called hydrothermal carbonization. This was back in 2012 or 13. And I said, well, this seems pretty interesting. Let's take a look at it. So another semester, more research, and started getting more understanding of it. I said, yeah, this is pretty interesting. Uh, solve some problems that I see with anaerobic digestion. So let's go ahead and, and test it out. So we set up the lab, started doing testing, and everything was carbonizing. And I just couldn't believe this technology was so efficient at what it was doing. So fast forward now eight, nine years, we've published eight master's theses on the 
technology itself, the process. And then we've gone through the steps of commercializing that tech. So for those of you who don't know, and for your listeners, hydrothermal carbonization was first identified in 1913 uh, by a Nobel Prize German chemist, Dr. Burgess. However, history intervened in the early part of the 20th century in Germany, World War I, World War II, the uh, separation of Germany in the East and West, reunification, uh, destruction of the wall. And then it was rediscovered in 2006 at the Max Planck Institute for Colloidal Science. So it's a bit of a conundrum in that it's a hundred year old technology, but it really hasn't started to get studied until 2006. So when you compare it to things like anaerobic digestion, which has been around in the U.S. at least since the 1950s, um, it's very in its very infancy stages. Can you define valorizing? Yeah, so valorizing is just making, you know, what can we use this for? It's a bit of circular economy principles or recycling. And so right now, you know, sewage sludge or biosolids are treated really as a waste product and municipalities will pay to dispose of it. It's treated as a waste management. Valorizing, it means you're converting that material from a waste product and you're finding beneficial uses for it. And so that could be, you know, putting it into materials. It could be generating energy from it. It could be using it to all sorts of things. Uh, so basically turning a liability into an asset, it would be my definition of valorization. Appreciate that. Now you spoke briefly about the path to commercialization. What did that journey look like? Oh, that journey was uh, quite interesting. I don't know how I pulled it off, but I convinced my wife with three young kids at home to let me uh, go travel across Europe and Asia for a month to go and meet with companies that were starting to commercialize um, HTC equipment. So I spent some time in Germany and in, in China and in Japan and wasn't really satisfied with what I saw there. So we kind of went back to the drawing board and I discovered a a small farmer in Switzerland. So I went back over to Switzerland, met with him and figured that he had actually unlocked something that, you know, um, troubled some of the other uh, plants that I had seen. And that is the fouling issue. Um, so when you heat up material, like you do in a hydrothermal carbonization, you will get uh, buildup or clogging on the pipes and, and the pores um, of the system. Similar to the way that, you know, if you eat cheeseburgers for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, your arteries are going to start to close. So he had to come up with his invention for solving that issue and developed a continuous process. And so we worked with him to take that to the next stage, take it out of his um, barn, actually put it into a pilot facility, and then scale it up to our commercial scale system that we're deploying right now. You know, I you know you're touching it briefly, but... Uh... Wives and families are often the unsung heroes of entrepreneurs. Oh, absolutely. My wife has supported me over this, uh, you know, for the last decade. And you can imagine going to your wife and saying, hey, honey, I have this idea that you want to valorize poop and make materials out of it. And, you know, by the way, you've got three young kids at home and I want to go travel for the next three months all over the world without <laughs> you. <laughs> so, yes, my wife is a saint and she has supported me since day one. Um, I think there's times she's looked at me and thought I was crazy, but, you know, it's never verbalized that. <laughs> now, so it's commercialized now. Can you describe what your unit looks like and who a customer might be? Yeah, so we're actually under construction of the first commercial scale system. Um, our 
unit is really a treatment train. So there are three primary components of the HTC-specific portions of that train. And our systems are containerized. So they're in uh, high cube standard shipping containers. So they're modular, meaning that we could build up and you know scale up that way. They're also designed to be deployed out into decentralized locations. So rather than wanting building one big centralized, you know, hundred million, two hundred million dollar facility, we can do small five, ten, fifteen million dollar facilities, and we can put this directly on site at the treatment plant. So this is a bolt-on technology, and we really integrate at the point of dewatering. So for your listeners that may not be familiar with wastewater treatment, wastewater treatment, you flocculate out and you're getting the solids out, be the human weight, and that's separated from the liquid. The water then gets treated separately and then discharged into the river and the, or a body of water. And then the solids are aggregated, combined. Sometimes they're treated, sometimes they're not. And then there are really three main disposal methods. The first one is incineration, which is exactly what it sounds like. You just burn the material um, and it's very energy intensive process and really generates no excess energy for return, puts particulate matter in the atmosphere. Um, you have NOx and SOx emissions associated. The other main way of disposing of biosolids is through um, landfilling. So here in the US, we're, you know, especially here in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states, we are running out of land. <clears throat> and so we're going to end up, they're predicting at capacity in the next 10 years of landfill space. So that's not going to be an option very much longer. And then the third option is that they land apply it to agricultural land as a fertilizer. So now, there are some so, restrictions. So, sorry to interrupt you here, Dan, but I want you to double click on this one because I want people to really pay attention to this part of what they do with it. Okay. So in land application... They spread biosolids or sewage sludge on agricultural land, and then they'll plant feed crops for animals. So this could be hay, it could be corn, or it could be alfalfa. And then they feed those crops to their animals. And this could be dairy cows, it could be uh, pigs, uh, it could be poultry, depending on what uh, the animal ag industry is doing at that location. But it's used for farmers as a cheap source of fertilizer because the biosolids are chock full of nitrogen in the form of ammonia, which is a fertilizer. They also have potassium um, and phosphorus in them. And so this was an idea that the practice that started, you know, in the 1930s. And it seemed to be a good idea because you're getting this cheap and recycling nutrients. However, a lot's changed since the 1930s. We've become a more modern society we're heavily medicated and the body does not absorb uh, medication. So if you're taking uh, hormones or if you're taking antidepressants, your body only absorbs a fraction of that material and then it exits the body in the waste stream. Those waste streams then end up at a wastewater treatment plant. And then they accumulate there because you're taking everyone's uh, leftover pharmaceuticals and you're piling them in into sewage sludge. And so we're spreading that along the land. Along with pharmaceuticals, you get things like, with synthetic materials, we get microplastics. Microplastics get into the pores of the soils and eventually clog them up. And then since about the 1960s, with the invention of Teflon and PFAS, you get these forever chemicals. And these are chemicals that do not break down in the environment. And so what you're seeing happening now is we're slowly poisoning our arable land with these toxins 
by putting our human waste on that land. So a prime example of this would be in Maine. In Maine, there now have been five dairies that have had to shut down operations. The farmers have lost their livelihood and lost their land because the land is polluted with PFAS. The milk from their dairy cows is testing at five times the legal limit for these PFAS or polyfluorinated compounds, these forever chemicals. And so <clears throat> Maine just recently banned the land application within the state. Um, you're also seeing this happening in Michigan, although there's not a ban yet, there's a lot of PFAS detection going on. And in, in Michigan, they've basically, every, every piece of biosolid from all over the state that they've tested, they found elevated levels of PFAS. So the way to think of a wastewater treatment plant is we're a sin eater. We eat the sins of society. Whether it's recreational drugs, you can identify increases and spikes of that through uh, testing of wastewater. You can test COVID and, and predict outbreaks from testing of wastewater. All of that congregates and accumulates within sewage sludge and biosolid. So this is where the entire industry is facing a big problem. And what do you do with these biosolids? Because you can't just say, hey, we're just going to stop treating human waste. You know, modern sanitation was identified as the number one health development over the last 200 years by the American Medical Association. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a down on your luck community, you're still gonna treat human waste. If not, you have much larger problems. So this talks about not only environmental concerns, but human health and public health concerns. Because if you don't treat human waste, you end up with things like outbreaks of diseases, cholera, and et cetera, that you see sometimes in the developing world where they don't have modern sanitation. So it's much bigger than just a problem of what we do with our biosolids. This impacts everyone and everyday life. Now, I just want to drive home what you said with a comment. You are what you eat eats, I believe. Yep, exactly. So what you're seeing is, you know, with this, these scientists have, have extrapolated that every single American has certain levels of PFAS in our blood. So we are slowly poisoning ourselves, whether it's through drinking contaminated water or eating food that has slight uh, levels of PFAS in it. And the reason for that is that it bioaccumulates. It stays in your body. The body has no way of breaking down these compounds and it just builds up. And this causes problems with uh, you know, creating certain types of cancer, liver cancer has reproductive health issues, you know, and really a lot of the science is still progressing on this. But I think if you've paid attention in the last year or so, you've seen that these forever chemicals have become a modern um, issue that, you know, unfortunately, the federal government has of yet, although they signaled intention to federal government with the EPA has not strictly put regulations on this. So right now, as far as I know, there's no standard uh, level for PFAS on a federal level or at a state. And I think that they also used the wastewater treatment facilities to identify during the, or actually I say during, but for the opioid epidemic. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you can detect a lot of things in wastewater. So Again, wastewater treatment plants are sin eaters. You can't hide from us. We know what's going on. We may not know it's you, but you can see spikes in opioids. You can see increases in cocaine uses or other recreational drugs. So there's an interesting study out of the UK where during um, festival season, they actually saw an increase in cocaine 
consumption, cocaine levels within wastewater at certain wastewater treatment plants. So yeah, nothing hides from from the wastewater treatment plant. Now, for the layperson that might not be aware of just how big or how many wastewater treatment facilities there are, can you give us perhaps a market size? Yeah, so in the United States, there's 15,000 wastewater treatment plants. Um, they will process on a wet ton basis um, about half a billion tons of human waste or produced sewage sludge. Um, these are just municipal wastewater treatment plants. This doesn't even include industrial wastewater treatment plants that are associated with factories. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, an issue that affects every community in America whether you're in Springfield, Missouri, or you're in New York City, or you're in um, Boise, Idaho. Everyone has the same problem because it's a universal truth and a universal factor. I call it the great equalizer, but everybody poops. And there's really no way to stop it. It's basic human function. So early on in this process, you know, as we were defining the business model, we said, you know, what's really interesting is that we're... Um, our feedstocks are the result of human activity. So whenever there's a concentration of humans, we're able to put our technology. And if I'm not mistaken, a wastewater treatment facility for a municipality is one of the largest power consumers. Is that true? That's correct. Yeah. So wastewater treatment consumes roughly between three and 5% of the total U.S. energy demand. Now, three to 5% doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about the entire United States energy demand, it's an enormous number. It's on the order of magnitude of about 30 terawatts of energy consumed, and it costs municipalities about $2 billion every year just in energy consumption. So what is the product that comes out, I guess pun intended, the other end of your unit? <laughs> the product that comes out, uh, we actually have two products. So the first product is the solid, and that is a hydrochar, not to be confused with biochar. They're cousins, but they're not the same. Uh, hydrochar or biocoal. So hydrochar is a very energy-dense carbon solid material, and it has a lot of attributes similar to fossil coal. So it can be used in the way that fossil coal can be used in a variety of instances, not just energy generation, but it has one unique difference. And that difference is this is today's carbon. So essentially, you know, we're acting as a carbon capture and utilization company, and we're able to capture and utilize carbon for less than $50 per ton. Most of the advanced or cutting edge technologies that you may have heard of, like direct air capture or carbon capture on flu stacks, they're still at the $400, $200 per ton. And some of them you know, have underperformed their expectations. We're able to, because it's much easier to capture carbon and it's before it valorizes into CO2 or methane and going into the atmosphere. So capturing it from the source before it can turn into carbon. And by utilizing that carbon, even if we use it as a biofuel to provide energy back to the wastewater treatment plant, that is carbon neutral, meaning that you're only adding the same carbon back to the atmosphere. So the way I like to visualize this for a lot of people is think of a forest. And in the spring, as leaves are forming, that tree, those trees are soaking up a tremendous amount of CO2 from the atmosphere. When those, in fall, when those leaves fall down to the ground and they start to degrade, they release that CO2 back in the atmosphere. It's like respiration in and out. 
So our carbon is today's carbon. It's not fossil carbon that's been stored in the earth for hundreds of millions of years. But our technology, hydrothermal carbonization, is we mimic the way Mother Nature makes fossil fuels. So we apply heat and pressure to organic material. And in a wet environment, that turns the water subcritical. Subcritical water means you can get it above boiling uh, point and it doesn't convert into steam. That subcritical water then triggers chemical reactions to occur. Those chemical reactions that occur, they break down the molecule into smaller chain molecules, and that's called a process called hydrolysis. And then we take those smaller molecules and we rough, clean up the rough edges, if you will. So we do a decarboxylation reaction, which creates uh, CO2 gas. Again, biogenic CO2, today's carbon. Um, we also do a dehydration reaction. So we're driving off alcohols and, and hydroxyl groups, but basically we're creating quote unquote new water because we're driving off hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms that are now combining to make new H2O. And then the final step in this process is we do a condensation reaction where we, we repolymerize all of those molecules back together into larger chains, and we're able to produce a more energy-dense, stable carbon compound than the original feedstock material. So with this, we do this at temperatures and pressures. The temperature is 180 to 220 degrees Celsius. So that's around um, 375 degrees Fahrenheit. So what you would bake a frozen pizza in your oven at, at home. We're not talking about thousands of degrees of heat. It's very mild temperature. And the pressure is about 20 bar or about 290 PSI. So to put that in perspective, if you're a scuba diver, you ever gone scuba diving, you're around 3000 PSI in your scuba tanks. We're at 290 here. So with mild pressure and mild temperature, we're essentially able to make modern coal in a very short amount of time, depending on the feedstock. So with sewage sludge, we accomplish this feat in 30 minutes. With more lignin type, like wood waste or wood chips, it takes about four hours. Um, but you're able to completely process that and carbonize that material at, at that temperature and pressure retention time. So if we take that and we turn up the temperature and we turn up the pressure, so if we go to 350 to 600 degrees Celsius, uh, and about 40 to 100 bar of pressure, you're going to create an oil. And if we crank up the pressure and temperature even higher, you can create a gas, like natural gas. So this is how coal, oil, and natural gas were all formed over millions and millions of years in the Earth's crust. We are essentially just mimicking that process, but we speed it up by an enormous factor. So 300 million years versus 30 minutes. You can see that's a vast improvement. Why that gets me excited as an efficiency guy saying, yes. That's process improvement. Yes, that is process improvement. Um, the other product that we get is we get a biosolution or a process water. So that process water is chock full of solubles. And by solubles, I, th I mean things like uh, luvenic acid. Um, you'll have furfurols in that. You'll have phenols, depending on your feedstock. But you also have ammonia. So what we're able to do is separate out the ammonia and put that into the liquid phase where we keep phosphorus and other minerals into the solid phase. And what's unique about that is that allows for selective recovery. If we do an acid addition to our treatment, we can push the phosphorus into the liquid phase. But here in the United States, specifically in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, 
our soils have too much phosphorus in them. So they're not interested in phosphorus as a fertilizer. They're interested in nitrogen in the form of ammonia as a, as a fertilizer. So we're able to do that selectively recovery through our application. Um, but we are able to capture the carbon out of the process in this, in our process. So going back to the contaminants, we destroy pharmaceuticals, microplastics become part of the matrix of the, of the hydrochar or the biocoal. And then finally, PFAS, they are shortened up into short chain polyfluorinated compound and they adhere to the surface of the hydrochar as well. When we go to that next step and we convert this into energy through gasification, that's a destruction of those forever chemicals, those PFAS compounds. Beyond energy, there are multiple uses for the hydrochar material. So you can use it as carbon sequestration in durable goods and building material. So one other use for it is you use it to replace sand in the concrete mix. So you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere through food, through human waste, capturing it, putting it into concrete and sequestering it for thousands of years. And this gives us an outlet that's ubiquitous. So everywhere you go in the United States, we've talked about 15,000 wastewater treatment plants. You will have a ready mix facility, which is where they mix the cement with aggregates to make the concrete, put it in the trucks and send it out to the construction job. You'll have a ready mix facility within probably 15 to 30 miles of any wastewater treatment plant in the United States. So we have a localized recovery, resource recovery and repurpose into durable building materials as well as accomplishing carbon sequestration and storage durably for thousands of years. So the two products are hydrochar and a biosolution, is that correct? Correct. Now, we talked about wastewater treatment facilities. What other use cases slash markets are you pursuing? Right. So overall, anything organic will carbonize. Um, so this process, we've done it with everything you can think of from flowers to uh i took in our, our turkey leftover turkey carcass and we carbonized it in our lab and yeah we can make co uh, coal out of out of carcasses but um you know where we focus on where they have a organic waste stream that's consistent um, so the spirits industry actually is another vertical that we've made a lot of headway in within the last two years spirits and alcohol production is vastly different than wastewater treatment plant uh, but the same technology, the same process works on both materials. The key difference is that with HTC or any biomass conversion technology, just like in real estate, it's location, location, location. In biomass transformation, it comes down to feedstock, feedstock, feedstock. So when we talked about sewage sludge, and that's an agglomeration of everything that you send down the drains or the toilets of a vast number of homes connected to the sewer system, you get everything. And there's a lot of variety in that material. When you locate at a uh, production facility like a bourbon distillery in Kentucky, you get a steady stream of spent grains. So spent grains are a byproduct of alcohol production. The way we make alcohol, whether it's ethanol, uh, whiskey, bourbon, you name it, is you take some sort of grain or biomass. So in this case, whiskey by definition, or bourbon by definition, has to have 51% of its corn. The rest is wheat and rye, or sometimes barley, depending on the, the mash bill. What they do is they put that into a, they, they wet it, they put that into a big tank called the fermenter, where they introduce enzymes. Those enzymes then extract the starch and protein out of 
the grain and they convert that into a sugar and then that sugar is then converted into uh, alcohol and this is grain alcohol that grain alcohol is then put into barrels and it ages for three years and that gives it its flavor and color so in this process you've taken this enormous amount of grains you've pulled out the starches from it to make your alcohol and then you have what's called spent grains that are left over those spent grains then accumulate on site and then they have to be again, disposed of. The traditional way of disposing them has been feeding them to animals. Um, it can be about 4% of the animal's feedstock and what they eat to grow mass to produce, um, you know, whether it's beef cattle, uh, dairy, or, or hogs, or swine. Um, but the problem is that these spent grains they have to be consumed within about 24 hours or else fungus and mold starts to develop on them and you end up making the cattle sick. So what's happened, and this has worked for quite a while because the original moonshiners were farmers, right? They fed the byproduct to their, their cattle or to their, their hogs. Now, modern day distilleries, you know, are producing millions of gallons and, and sometimes producing, you know, 100,000 gallons of spent grains per day. And so what's happened as the bourbon industry specifically has expanded and grown in popularity over the last decade or so. You have a supply and demand issue. There's too much supply for the, the animal livestock to consume all of this spent grain. And so it's become a real issue within the state because farmers are not feeding it to their animals. The excess is going to put on the, the land um, and it's running off into rivers and streams and it's caused fish kills. So it's an environmental concern as well. And there's no way to get around that process. So what we do is we take those spent grains, we can put our system on site, we convert those, and now that you have this unique, consistent feedstock, we actually make a very high-end technical carbon out of it. This has a high energy density, so it's about 30 megajoules per kilogram, and that's higher than anthracite coal, which is sort of the king of, of solid fuels. So we're able to do that, and by taking this spent grain, this byproduct of alcohol production, we can turn that to energy on site at the distillery and meet 80 plus percent of the thermal energy demand for distillation. Um, so that's, you know, these distillers can drop their fossil fuel inputs by 80%. If we source other feedstock material, we can get well over 100%, but this is just with what they're producing. The other way that you can do this, it's such a, such a high energy density and it has such a low contamination rate. It's about 1% ash content where anthracite coal is 10% ash content. This has attracted interest from the steel industry to replace metallurgical coke for steel production. So you could draw a line from spirits to steel uh, and showing carbon utilization and a certain percentage of sequestration because as you use it as metallurgical coke, its primary function is a reducing agent, driving off oxygen atoms from iron to reduce it to elemental iron for steel production but around one and a half percent of carbon actually interacts with the iron and gets into the steel. And that's where you get things like carbon steel. And when you're putting say today's carbon into carbon steel, you're sequestering it for thousands of years because steel is infinitely recyclable. So you can go and draw a line from a glass of bourbon to a skyscraper or to a bridge uh, in your community. And you can trace that carbon element from where it's grew in the field, to the to the bourbon, to the uh, the steel factory, 
and then into that skyscraper or into that bridge. That's a pretty amazing line. Let's switch gears here. So about nine years ago, you made the leap from process improvement to septic, and now Somex. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself on your journey? You know, the most valuable lesson is that you can handle a lot more than you think you can. Um, and for me, I don't, like some of your other guests, I don't come from a scientific background. I didn't go to a fancy Ivy League school and learn from premier professors. I know enough to be dangerous. I don't hold any degrees, um, but I'm relentless in pursuing my vision and pursuing my goals. And so you'll never find anyone more persistent from a guy who knows nothing about, started out knowing nothing about chemistry, um, fast forward eight years and spent millions of dollars of my own money onto this technology, uh, you know, just keep at it. And that's one of the things that I bring to the table is just my stick to And I don't know if that's an actual word or not, but I'm going to make it up here that I stick with the problem until I have it solved. So not getting discouraged is probably the biggest thing that I've come across. Where does that come from? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I think it's just being stubborn. Um, but, you know, just having that drive, not being, you know, the best at, at something. And you know that you've got to grind and you've got to improve and you've got to continuously go after this chip away day after day after day. When you look back and I look back over the last nine years or decade, I mean, where I came from to where I am now, I mean, I never would have imagined it. Um, being able to be on podcasts and talk chemistry without a chemistry degree, um, <laughs> talk about solutions about steel and cement, never even really knew about those industries. I knew what they did and how you made it, but, you know, from an abstract perspective. But, you know, going from working with IT and how do we make companies more efficient to working within cycles, biological cycle, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, and Working on sustainability has really been a fascinating journey. It's something that, um, you know, I am just happy to contribute to to the industry. And whatever improvements we can make are fantastic. Well, from looking back, let's look forward. Let's say 10 years from now, it's 2030, 2032. One of your favorite publications, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fortune, anyone were to write an article, headline, small paragraph, short paragraph about SOMAX, what would you like them to write? I would like them to write about just the overall effect that we're having. So we've talked a lot about sewage sludge and carbonization and things like that, but there are other uh, unintended consequences. So by doing these things and preventing these pollutants to get in there, you're actually looking at cleaner air, cleaner water, um, cleaner soils. And I'd like to be able to look back and, and say, here's the impact we've had. And to be used as more of inspiration for other folks that, you know, maybe didn't grow out privileged, maybe didn't go to the best colleges or even go to college at all, that someone uh, like me can make a difference. And that there's, there's hope for you as well if you're not one of these uh, privileged few that, you know, it takes a village and it takes everyone from that village to make improvements. And so you can play a big role within the sustainability um, industry without having that, that pet perfect pedigree. And last question, uh, you, you know, you said everyone can participate. I appreciate that. But if you could share some specific advice, words of wisdom, recommendations with the audience, it could be professional or personal, what would it be? Um, so I get asked this question a lot by uh, college students and my, my 
advice is find a big problem. Find a big problem that no one's looking at, right? So that big problem for me was sewage. And where does that take you? You can't predict where you'll be, but you know, keep focused on it. Keep digging, chipping away, keep at it, keep that grind, and you'll accomplish some great things. But you know, focus on something and have a big picture of where you want to go in a vision and follow it doggedly every day, day in, day out, even those days when you know, you'd rather stay in bed or just lounge around and watch TV is put in the work. And that compounds day over day over day. Next thing you know, you'll look back in a decade and you'll be miles from where you start. I appreciate that. And I know I said last question, but I have to cheat here for a quick moment. Um, while researching this conversation, I saw that uh, you read a book to your daughter called Everybody Poops. Yes. <laughs> what that was that? Well, yeah, that was a, a book. I don't know. I'd have to ask her what she thinks now. Um, you know, she's 10 now. Um, I've read it to all three of my kids, um, but you know it was one that they enjoyed, and it was you know dad would make the funny sounds when he read the book. So it was a it was a precious time when they were young. Um, unfortunately, you know they, they grow up, and you kind of miss those days when you could read them a book in bed instead of them rolling your eye their eyes at you. And, <laughs> you know my my oldest is a teenager now, and she communicates in, with me with eye rolls and sighs. And oh, I'm on the, the same journey. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing how they go from being your little girl to you're the most annoying person on the planet. And I'm hoping that that comes back full circle and, uh, you know, you can get that back, that relationship. But those are the teenage years are some, some trying years for sure. I understood. Well, Dan, I appreciate your time today. I wish you all the best with Somax and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Raj. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.